0: We were not profitable in 2014 because uh, Russia-Crimea thing, it's like the whole thing that's going on right now, it's, it started back then with Russian ruble losing its value. So first of all, we're losing money because we didn't convert rubles right away. And also people start declining their trips and not booking new trips because of what's going on with the currency. And this is when our business went from really profitable to like barely surviving. And everyone kept telling us it was probably time to shut everything down. It
1: starts with just taking that leap.
0: You have to work hard, you have
1: to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if, it fails, even if it fails, you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten in death. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go
0: with
1: your gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. In the span of a few weeks, where this thriving study abroad program seemed to collapse alongside the Russian ruble. With the travel market disappearing overnight amidst the country's political conflict, it seemed like this might be the end of LinguaTrip. But don't tune out just yet. While this setback might have stopped another influencer or businesswoman, Marina Mogilko is now a prominent entrepreneur and content creator with more than 9 million subscribers across her three YouTube channels. As founder of one of the first Russian-owned startups in Silicon Valley, Marina's videos provide a unique perspective on business, investment opportunities, and her immigrant journey. But before she found success at home and abroad, Marina was just a kid who loved linguistics. Growing up in the isolation of post-Soviet Russia, she knew that learning English was her key to a better future. Tell me about growing up in in Russia and what that was like.
0: So I grew up in Russia, St. Petersburg, and spent the first 25 years of my life there. I think from... Like when I was four years old, my granddad told me I have to learn English in order to be successful in my life. So this has been with me all my life. Like I started learning English when I was four.
1: I guess I want to know why your, your grandfather felt like you needed to study English. Like why was that so important to your family and him? And, and like, what do you, what did he think that that would allow you to do? I
0: think like, when I was born, Soviet Union just collapsed, like literally like several weeks before I was born. And before that, everything was happening abroad. Like Russia was isolated from the rest of the world. My parents would line up for hours to get milk to get like basic produce there wasn't anything in stores stores were empty and so yeah we had like people who were in the soviet union they had access to information about what's going on in the west and they saw you know stores full of food full of clothes people living their lives traveling and i think my family was just inspired by all of that and they were like marina You know, if you're learning English, this would be your chance to live a great life and experience life abroad.
1: Why couldn't your family leave?
0: Oh, you can't. You couldn't. It's impossible. But before the 90s, you couldn't really leave because the borders were closed.
1: Couldn't even get a passport?
0: No, 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 no. It's like, it's not allowed. You could travel within the Soviet Union, but you could only travel abroad if you were some kind of a sport person or a diplomat. And then when the 90s started, when the borders opened up, but like, I would say 90% of people lived in poverty in like they were really poor. And my So my parents lived in St. Petersburg and my grandparents would come to them bringing potatoes. Like, would you imagine traveling 48 hours on a train just to bring potatoes to your family? Like, this is how poor almost everyone was in Russia back then. Um, yeah, so there was like no way they could go abroad. They wouldn't be able to afford it.
1: As you were growing up, did you realize that you were like poor, didn't have the opportunities that um, maybe like the West had? Like, was that was that obvious to you? It
0: it wasn't like I felt poor or anything. I felt that we have our lives, and there is another world which is not where we live, and I was kind of okay with it. But then, like in the early two thousands, when the new modern Russia started developing, we started having a lot of oligarchs. And this is when you kind of felt poor, because you saw people driving Mercedeses and, you know, having these huge apartments, owning buildings. Uh, but it was like only like maybe two or three, per- maybe even less uh, percent of, of population. But before that, you're like, you know, as a kid, you don't really like understand. You just live your life. You're happy. I remember my mom also told me like we would have one apple per week. That was my dessert. I was like, cool, apple today. And then we had yogurts, which was amazing. I remember like when Russia started importing goods from from the West and that was kind of cool.
1: Yeah. So when you were you so uh, English was really important um and it seems like you actually did pretty well cuz how how did you actually get like o- awarded for uh like the talented youth in the Russian Federation I like how does that even work?
0: I think they just they award this to everyone who took part in nationwide competitions and like a way to take an part in this nationwide competition, you have to win in your school, then you win in your district, then you win in your city. And then if you win in your city, they send you to this Pan-Russia Olympiad. So I went to Pan-Russia Olympiad in English, uh, which was pretty cool because I was so passionate about it. Um, And then everyone who was there, and I was also a straight A student, and then they awarded me and it was like 30,000 rubles back then, which was like around, I think it was around like $700, which was my first big money that I made. And I was so proud of myself.
1: When does it start to like escalate to maybe opening you up to visiting other countries?
0: My first like proper trip, I mean proper, like flying abroad. This is what I mean. Not like going by car. Flying abroad was uh, when I won that scholarship to go to the UK when they uh, were doing this exchange program. So I could go there for free, stay with local family, Go to Marlborough College for two weeks, uh, and just attend classes with uh, with everyone. And this is this is when I realized that the language that I was learning doesn't really sound like what people are speaking in the UK. I couldn't really understand people. And that motivated me so hard to actually double down on learning. I actually went with a group of of other kids from my school who were selected as a part of... No, I wasn't really, I was excited for me. It was like, oh my God, I am going to an English speaking country. I've been learning English for 10 years and now I get a chance to finally experience the real English speaking environment.
1: Yeah, that's super exciting. Um, so coming back from that trip, where did you have like a travel bug? Were you like, I want to do this more? I want to practice my English more?
0: Oh, yeah, I cried. for. I think I cried for days. I, I really wanted to go back so bad. But I knew that, you know, I had my school in Russia. And so I actually went on that study abroad trip. Three times. And you're only allowed to to be part of it like once. (laughs) Back then we had this program at school and they selected like annually, they would select 10 students, send them abroad. So I just did everything to be selected and they selected me three times.
1: So how old are you at this point after your third trip?
0: 17.
1: 17. Um, So looking towards like university, what are you thinking you want to study and and what are you, like, how has this trip informed the direction that you want to take your life in?
0: Yeah, I actually always wanted to just study languages, but my parents were like, what do you want to do? Become a language teacher? No way. Um, and so I could actually... Yeah, I could get admissions into like a top university in Russia if I studied linguistics with zero exams because of all of those competitions I took part in. But my parents were like, no, maths, economics, this is what you're doing. So, yeah, I, I know. I think it's a great choice.
1: Why Why do you think they suggested that? Like, why was a language teacher not good? Or like, like what, what do you think they...
0: Oh because of the salaries. Like if you just look at the average salary of an English language teacher. And again, now there are so many opportunities. You can start your own blog. And this is basically what I do. I still talk about English in on my YouTube channel. But back then, your only like your best opportunity was probably teaching at a good school. And but if you studied mathematics and economics, you could work at a bank. You could work as a financial manager at a company. Yeah, because of all the opportunities, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they want to make sure like you were financially set up, I'm sure too. Um, yeah. What did you, what did you think of the, uh, of studying that or studying economics?
0: It was crazy. It was mostly maths in the first two years and I came from a linguistic school, so it was really hard for me. Uh, but I think it's super exciting getting an opportunity to start to study something that complicated. Uh, and I remember like feeling really bad about Every single class, basically, but then it got better.
1: Bad in what way? Like you weren't, you weren't good about. Like, it? I
0: didn't understand anything. We we had a teacher, a maths teacher, who just wanted to overcomplicate everything. So not a single word, the most complicated symbols in this Latin alphabet you can think of, and that was just all so confusing.
1: Yeah, no, I can imagine. Like, where, did you think about not completing or like dropping out ever, or was that even in the
0: cards? No. Not an option. <laughs> Why not? Because, well, my parents, they, first of all, they invested so much in that because I had a lot of tutors and I just couldn't, I, you know, I couldn't um, do that to them. And also I understood, I realized I'm in a good place and I just need a little bit more effort. And then, you know, I also realized 90% of the students were in the same situation <laughs> as me. So it, I felt Okay.
1: Yeah. So we are all struggling together. Um, so I, I guess I, uh, next I want to kind of lead up to when you started exploring YouTube.
0: Oh, it actually all happened in 2014 when I was. So I ha- I've always had this dream of studying abroad, but I my parents could not afford paying for my master's. And then I realized that there are actually Fulbright scholarships in the U.S. And I started preparing for my GMAT and TOEFL and uh i was watching youtube videos by other people and this is how i discovered the platform in 2014 and i was like oh my god there are also like local youtube specific superstars it's this this whole different planet with uh, with different things going on there so I decided to you know just just focus my attention there and I was super inspired by several creators like local creators in Russia and uh, when I took my Gmat I recorded my first video and that was also in December 2014.
1: What was the first video?
0: How to take Gmat? how to score 700 out of 800 on Gmat?
1: Was that first video produced in an effort to like have the same success as these local creators that you saw?
0: and i think there were two motivations first i really wanted to connect with people who were also going through the same process cuz all my friends like none of my friends were seeking admissions in the us um and uh, it felt really lonely so i thought what if i create a video maybe i find someone in the comment section who is going through the same process and thought number 2 when i was preparing for my gmat most of the content that i consumed was in english mostly by companies who specialize in teaching people how to take tests. And I really needed content from someone who just took GMAT and ideally someone whose first language is not English because it's a different thing. Right. And I was like, let me create this for other fellow Russian students. And of course I was inspired by other creators. I kind of borrowed their style, which was just holding a camera in front of yourself. That's like, there wasn't any style really, but well, it's, it's, It's an approach that you can take on YouTube.
1: Did you find anyone?
0: Yes, I actually... So first of all, I found um, like a group of people who was doing the same thing. And second, a couple of them became my first students because they wanted me to train them to take GMAT.
1: Wait, how did that happen? They
0: actually reached out to me on like a Russian Facebook. There is contacted, which is a Russian type of Facebook. They reached out to me and said, we saw your video because it's the same name there and on YouTube. And they asked me whether I teach people how to take GMAT and I'm, I was like, oh, well, I've never taught, but I could definitely explain things to you. And this was actually my first money I made off YouTube. I charged him like $10 an hour.
1: What was it like teaching people?
0: I loved it. I loved the tutoring process, but most of all, I love creating videos for, you know, because when you tutor someone, it's one-on-one, but you actually say the, say the same things you could have said in a video and i wanted everything to be more scalable so another video that i made was about another test and then you know i just focused on creating videos on youtube versus just doing one on ones but i still did one on ones till i think 2017
1: how do your your videos change from the first one
0: i think my second video was about toefl another test that you take as an international student and the third video was about personal statements and the fourth video was probably with the first acceptance letter with a full rights scholarship, because uh, it happened like within the two months. And uh, yeah, so all of my videos were just recording myself talking about the subject. But then also, three months later, uh, after I started my channel, our company got accepted to five hundred startups in Silicon Valley, and this is when we actually moved to the U.S. to run a company. It's like two different lives. Uh, so we, my husband and I, we were just dating back then. We started a company in 2011 to help Russian students study abroad. And um, in 2013, we realized that we wanna scale it outside Russia and we started coding a platform. Like We hired a developer who later became our CTO. We started coding that platform. And then we started applying to different accelerators across the world, Y Combinator, Techstars 500.
1: What was the development of that that company?
0: We started 2011 was really slow start, 2012 we were kind of growing, 2013 super profitable. Like I made my first 1 million rubles, which is uh, $15,000, something like that for me, huge money. I, again, and I gave everything to my parents. <laughs> this is uh, my thing.
1: So like you were having all the success with the business, right? So you're, were, you're were profitable. You were taking people to like all these places around the world to study abroad.
0: I forgot to mention we were not profitable in 2014 because, uh, uh, Russia, Crimea thing. And, uh, like it's like the whole thing that's going on right now It's it started back then. Uh, with the Russian ruble losing its value. Uh, you know, first sanctions, people stopped, like a lot of people stopped traveling abroad. And this is when our business went from really profitable to like barely sur- surviving.
1: Actually, can you tell me about that that time in like more detail?
0: Yeah, I think it was just like, Checking because what we did, we collected fees in Russian rubles. And then in like a couple of weeks, we would send them, like we would convert them into British pounds and send them to schools because most of our schools were in the UK. And then so you collect money when British pound is 50 rubles per pound. And then in two days, it's already 68 rubles per pound. And then in four days, it's a hundred rubles per pound. So first of all, we're losing money because we didn't convert rubles right away and also people start declining their trips and not booking new trips because of what's going on with the currency
1: were you nervous of, like during this time
0: nah not really i i was like Cause I was so passionate about it. And I also knew that there is a plan B where I can go abroad, do my MBA somewhere. Cause at that time I already knew about all the scholarship opportunities. And I was like, you know, we'll just give that thing a shot. Maybe I get accepted to an MBA program.
1: How does the accelerator go too?
0: It was great. It was amazing. It was a, uh, we still like think with my husband, when we think about life-changing events in our lives, definitely having kids and being at 500 startups, because the whole life just changed in a day. How? Moving from, you know, Russia to Silicon Valley, being one of the first Russian startups in Silicon Valley and starting to get all the press and like meeting all of the amazing people that I didn't have access to in Russia, uh, meeting amazing founders, going to all the all the talks like going to la for the first time going to las vegas doing a vlog like everything changed just in a day really
1: what was like the biggest thing for your company like as you were going like as you were getting all of that influx of of uh attention and and money and opportunity
0: just giving getting this credibility because the average check is two thousand dollars and like when people just see a platform like an online website that asks you for two thousand dollars, there is not too much trust if it's a new website. But with all the press and um, all the attention that we were getting, it definitely helped us with the trust thing.
1: Let's go to twenty eighteen when when like you noticed things just like starting to pick up for your channel. Like what were the first things that you noticed?
0: I think I reached one hundred thousand subscribers on my Russian channel in two thousand seven. I think it was summer 2017. I started my second channel in 2016. So when my Russian channel was one year old, I wanted to create the same content, but in English. So I started Lingua Marina. That channel took off pretty quickly because again, I was talking about GMAT and TOEFL and there was so much demand for it and there was still so much demand for it. And then I realized that my American friends were not consuming my content because I was mostly talking either in Russian or about learning English. And I started a channel called Silicon Valley Girl to cater for my American audience to talk about business and life in Silicon Valley. And now it's more like a lifestyle slash business channel.
1: Why did you feel like you had to split up those channels?
0: Well, first of all, you can't really mix two languages on one channel. It's very confusing for the audience, for the algorithm. And the second thing, I actually saw how videos about getting investment and like fundraising for a company, they just tanked on my Lingo Marina channel. Uh, And so I thought, you know, it's time to create a different channel and stop confusing the audience who came to learn English. And I'm like talking to them about raising money and going through accelerators.
1: How are you even building out the systems to support all of these different channels?
0: Well, in in terms of systems, I hired an editor. This was a game changer for everything because it just saved six hours per video uh, because he was editing everything. Um, And then I created a schedule for myself, three long videos a week. So one on each channel. And I just try to stick to it.
1: A big jump for a lot of YouTubers is hiring that, that first editor or hiring that first help.
0: I announced every job that I had on my channel so I could hire from my subscribers and most of them back then were in Eastern Europe. So I hired in Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Belarus, and the average salary is 10 to $15 an hour, which is really good compared to the average prices in California, for example.
1: So it seems like you got into a flow with the editor. How do you keep building up your processes so you can expand?
0: I have three editors because, you know, they go on vacations. They want some time off. Um, I have a YouTube manager. This is something, this was a game changer for me. I hired my first one in 2019, which is basically, I call them YouTube managers, but they're like my assistants who help me post, do my research, analyze what's going on in the channel, suggest topics. Um, and I have two YouTube managers now, so I don't really do anything in, except for filming. They would do like all the posting. I have two thumbnail designers. So my YouTube manager would actually work with a thumbnail designer. They would suggest titles to me. They would do all the descriptions, time codes. Um, and again, as I mentioned, research. I have a person who is responsible for sales. She would interact with companies and uh, do uh do the brand deals. And I have a personal assistant who helps me with just, you know, emails or PR opportunities.
1: How did you start the YouTube school?
0: I just wanted to create my own course. I actually started with a webinar that I sold, like a two-hour thing when I would just go and talk about YouTube. And I saw how much demand was there. And I saw how people were asking me super basic questions like how you actually create a channel? Or what do you uh, select as your channel art? Do you need to have a schedule? So I decided to record a course was super basic, that took me like a couple of days to record. It was nine classes, very, very basic course. And now, the course that we launched last month has 100 classes with lectures from vidIQ, GetResponse, all the like great educational companies, YouTube companies. Um, it just evolved so much, but we also have simpler products like a course on how to start with short videos, but I just love the in-depth learning like of of the products so you can find anything that you want so you can you know learn how to build a funnel out of a youtube channel so you can learn how to read your analytics with vidIQ and I just love working with those companies.
1: When you were starting this youtube school initially what was the impact that you were seeing directly?
0: We have a lot of students with silver and golden buttons and I think when we're learning we want to learn from someone relatable and when I was learning about YouTube, I was... Yeah, there were amazing creators that I watch, but they're mostly male, American. <laughs> like, I, it was cool, but it wasn't relatable. And I feel like it, I have a lot of female YouTubers. I have a lot of immigrant YouTubers. I think this is my audience. And people who want to tag, tap into an English-speaking market, maybe having an accent, maybe... Having fears that you're not like Mr. Beast, because Mr. Beast is the largest creator out there. But there are also so many other creators that people watch. So my course is for those who see themselves in me.
1: So can you track me up to maybe like 2019? Uh, how all of your your different projects are developing where where are your your multiple channels where's the the youtube course um and where's lingua trip
0: yeah 2019 we just launched my first youtube course i got pregnant with our first kid there she is Um, and, uh, I realized this is the time when I have to delegate as much as possible. So I stepped down from my role of like COO at LinguaTrip. So my husband took over most of my things and hired people to substitute me so I can focus on the baby. Um, I still have three channels. I didn't miss an upload when I was in the hospital. I made the videos beforehand. So I was still producing videos in full mode. Uh, what else? Yeah, everything was was I think 2019 was great.
1: Did you feel like that priority shift was was like difficult to actually make happen?
0: No, it was so organic cuz I was I I now I understand that I hate running companies. I I don't like Zoom calls. I don't like when they are obligatory, mandatory every Monday, you know, heads of all departments. Oh my God. Like, I don't, I don't want that. I want to wake up to a completely free schedule because when I see that there is nothing planned, I start making videos. I start talking to people. I become creative. And when I see that my schedule is like a call every hour, I just get depressed. (laughs) I don't know. And this is what I started to realize when we had, we were at a stage when we had 80 people and like, my i was bombarded with emails and call requests every day and like every problem would backfire on me and you know like it was it was tiring and so i thought you know i'm gonna focus on what i love creating content thinking about the products and we can always hire somebody to replace me in like operational stuff
1: so when you had that like more space for creativity um uh and I feel like that, I guess, paired with uh, the pandemic hitting, uh, I think what I've noticed is a lot of creators, that was a time actually to create more. It's like you have all the space on your calendar. Um, everything is stopping. And so, like, what do you do? I guess, like, you you, you sit in a room and make a video.
0: Well... Don't forget that I have a, like a three month old baby when it all starts. Yeah. So it's so not like I have all the time in the world. I, I was actually recording another course. I remember, um, that time, but also, yeah, creating content. So first of all, we lost 95% of our revenue. So we were like focusing on who we should fire and who stays in the company, how do we pivot to the online product? So it was one part of it. Another part of it is, you know, me thinking of other income streams and thinking about which products I can launch apart from just travel and language learning, because it was something I was really focused on. And um, yeah, just being busy with a kid.
1: Yeah. And then also like, during this time, this is when you launch your TikTok, right?
0: Well, I wouldn't say launch. I just asked my team to repurpose videos for TikTok. I never really, I never even checked the comments.
1: Was it doing anything then Then or, it, it or not was. really? Yeah. yeah,
0: it was like it hit 2 million followers by the end of 2020, I think. Which was kind of I mean, cool. that's
1: huge. Why weren't you, why was it, why weren't you like checking it at all? If, uh, if you were getting that much traction or was it not
0: interesting. What's, like, I don't, I don't understand TikTok till now. Like, so what you get 30 million views, what you get mentioned on Buzzfeed, you get an article on Mashable and that's it. Like really, cause you cannot guarantee that every single video is going to get That amount of views like TikTok algorithm doesn't really care about your subscribers. So the point of me having 2.7 million subscribers is me being able to say, hey, I have 2.7 million subscribers, which doesn't translate into revenue. I get paid maybe $2 a day on TikTok, which doesn't translate into product purchases because you're penalized by the algorithm if you mention a product like who cares about my TikTok? No one cares about my TikTok. This is just what I feel like. And it's like, I'm hoping they're going to fix it. But for now, I think it's our shot at becoming super famous. But if you're not Charlie D'Amelio, or if you're not Kaby Lame, or Edison Ray, you're just not getting the deals that would make it sustainable for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's something that a lot of creators are hoping that tiktok will fix and and i do you see that like they're like planning on splitting like 50 percent of revenue or something on some videos um uh, hopefully yeah because two
0: dollars a day is like laughing in my face (laughs) i know it's ridiculous
1: especially with youtube actually paying creators a a good living um
0: yeah
1: so you weren't really focusing on um i guess on tiktok too much but you were getting massive success but what was happening with your your channels during COVID?
0: Uh, They were stably growing. I wouldn't say because I wasn't hyping on like COVID topic. I was just talking about learning English and business and just what what we're going through uh, and, you know, vlogging my new life with a baby. I think that's why I wasn't paying too much attention to COVID.
1: So it seems like you got like a little bit of a reset when COVID started like uh, loosening up a bit. Um, What did you decide to focus on then? And 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 i guess like also how did your your channels um grow to where they are today
0: um so i got pregnant in 2020 again <laughs> So for me, like when people talk about COVID, I'm like COVID affected our company, but in my life, I was going through a completely new transformation, like becoming a mom and then becoming a mom again. Uh, So I didn't really pay too much attention to COVID. Again, we traveled a lot. We went on a big trip with our friend visiting Guatemala and Mexico. And, you know, that was, that was kind of cool. And uh, yeah, I still kept creating my content, you know, it's like having a schedule every week. And I think just that Consistency um, and doubling down on videos that performed well. At the end of 2020, I think I started taking short videos more seriously, but I was still like, okay, let's repurpose, but let's also repurpose on YouTube. That was like me taking them seriously. But in 2021, I started taking them too seriously, which means I started creating short specific content. And this is where, you know, I started getting this massive traction on Silicon Valley girl with my lifestyle videos.
1: So where's everything today with all of, uh, with everything that you're working on?
0: I think I'm focusing on shorts even more. One of the shorts got 4 million views in the past seven days, brought me 20,000 new subscribers. Wow! (laughs) I'm so proud of my relationship with YouTube. I was hosting Educon for educational creators in September in New York, and they flew in over a hundred amazing educational creators like Mark Rober or English with Lucy. And they flew them in to like have this day of uh, learning about new things that YouTube is doing for education. I was at their creator summit um, a month ago, I think, in Palm Springs, or no, it was like two weeks ago, where again, they had all the top creators, uh, Marques and Call Me Chris, like all of the new creators who do shorts and then this saturday they actually appointed me their um, shorts ambassador in the bay area so i hosted the very first uh, bay area shorts creator meetup in in my home and uh now we're working on another exciting project with youtube so i'm very i'm very proud that i am able to work with a company and also meet the executives and maybe talk about my problems and my accomplishments with a platform Uh, So I'm super excited. They pay so much attention to the creator community. And I'm thinking of slowing down a little bit with long videos because I really want to focus on the short content.
1: Why do you think that is?
0: I mean, it's just getting more traction right now. And in order to create a good short video, you still need a decent amount of time. And it's either, you know, I create a long video that will still get like a hundred K views, depending on the channel. Maybe it's 50 K, maybe it's 30 K, maybe it's 200 K, or I focus a little bit more energy on creating a short video and it gets to 10 million views. Cause like the view potential, I think when the algorithm favors short videos, you need to double down on them. I could always go back to posting four long videos a month, but now I'm going to do maybe two, but more shorts.
1: Does that? Do you think that will lead to like rest less revenue for your channel and like uh, or and also like what do you think the relationship you're creating with your subscribers is in in short form videos? Because something that like I think about is like the relationship with the long form video is probably a little more intimate. Definitely, right? and
0: they still going to be there. Uh, it it's just. They're going to be a little bit less of them. But if, I think about like short con is top of the funnel, level one, they know your face. Level number two, they watch your stories, they watch your long videos, uh they are, they leave their email and like level number three, they're your customers. And so because there is so much happening at this level one right now, why not focus there? And, uh, you know, getting getting recognized by other creators, getting more opportunities, getting more yeses from brand, brand deals that I want to work with. Oh, sorry, brands that I want to work with. So I would just, you know, and yes, relationship building is important, but it's also important that you don't miss this window of, of opportunity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like shorts, there's just such a massive window. So if you had to give advice um, to like new creators coming on the scene, um who are are trying to to make something um uh sustainable um from from uh, being a creator, what advice do you think you would give like new creators now?
0: Uh, create shorts. <laughs> this would be like number one advice. Don't miss this. Uh, but also think about like how do you get them get your subscribers to the second level? Is it by uh, creating a Discord channel? Is it by sending a Substack email? Is it by uh, di- uh, directing them to your Instagram and you know being exciting and stories Um, because building that connection is super important because what happens if you only focus on shorts people know your face but they don't even know your name they're like oh i've seen you somewhere that's it you need to be more um, specific about how you're going to form this community